ideas are embodied in people. And if you want ideas to succeed, you need to embody them in people. There is no perfect Socratic fora where all the best ideas are being debated and the best ones rise to the top. No, the ideas that rise to the top rise to the top as a function of whether or not the people who believe them have power. It's not enough to elect candidates. It's not enough to have the right ideas. There needs to be an entire array of policy um, and personnel infrastructure in DC in order to implement that agenda. So what American Moment exists to do is to identify, educate, and credential the people who will be the embodiments of those ideas in important institutions. There's three that we're mostly focused on, maybe three and a half, depending on how you cut it. Presidential administrations, congressional offices, public policy organizations, and allied businesses. Those are the four. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO and Chief Water Enjoyer of American Moment, uh, and I'm joined by nobody. Uh, it's a very lonely uh, side of the table over here. Today, we interviewed uh, Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, uh, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, I uh, wanted to direct you to our website, AmericanMoment.org. Um, you can find a multitude of, of things on there um, uh, from AmCanon, which is our educational resource with books, podcasts, articles, videos to watch um, about our worldview, the kinds of things that we believe in. Um, you you can also find AmericanMoment.org slash join uh, if you want to get connected to American Moment. Uh, we're pretty small team. And so if you fill out that form, uh, you'll end up on a, on a video call, uh, or an in-person meeting if you're local, uh, with, with one of us. Um, so highly recommend that you, you go and, and check that out. Uh, if you feel so inclined after watching this uh, great interview with Sarab today, you can go to AmericanMoment.org slash donate, uh, to, to give more of your, uh, your hard-earned money uh, to our to our cause and to the work that we're doing. Um, so I'm going to ad lib an intro uh, for Sarab because I forgot to print one out. Um, Sarab is a, a, a great friend, has been a great friend for, for many years. Uh, he and I met actually the same evening as my wife and I met uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, he and I talked for, for hours at this now defunct bar uh, that, that did uh, uh, trivia. And so he and I like kept talking. He was living in Texas at the time. Um, and then we, uh, you know, when COVID hit, we started talking a lot more. We were in some group chats together um, and just got to got to being really close. Um, he was the one that recommended. I asked my now wife out on a date. Um, he was a, a groomsman on our wedding. Um, we've, you know, built this organization together. We've gone shooting together. We've... Um, Sauned together. We've swam in the lake together. He was at my bachelor party. I mean, um, you know, it's very, I feel very privileged to call him a friend and to be able to work with him every day, uh, though that can get annoying um, at times. Uh, so now, without further ado, we'll go to uh, my best friend and the president of American Moment, Sarab Sharma. Sarab, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> so long like time, it's long like you're time. not on this show every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how they say it? I've never listened to a radio show in my entire life, so I have no idea how it goes. Well, you know how the show goes. Uh, 
first question, where'd you come from? How'd you get where you are now? Mm-hmm. Why are you the way that you are? <laughs> it began in the beginning of time. Um, uh, I hail from the East, actually. Uh, I was born in Bangalore, India, and then moved to the US when uh, I was three months old. My dad was already here. He was uh, working for telecommunications companies and has done that uh, his entire career. Uh, we moved to Lexington, Kentucky, then Albuquerque, New Mexico, then LA, then Seattle, then LA again, then Atlanta, a different place in Atlanta. And we moved back to India for my eighth, ninth, and 10th grade, and then moved to the North Dallas suburbs where I graduated from high school at the biggest high school in the state. Um, went to high school with Kyler Murray, <laughs> funnily enough. And then uh, I went to the University of Texas, where I was a biochemistry major and uh, caught the bug for politics in 2015. Um, It was the summer after my freshman year, and uh, all my friends had gone home for the summer, uh, but I was still in Austin taking classes and uh, got a bit of a YouTube bug for watching Trump rallies and Bernie speeches and political content of every kind that I can find and kind of fell down what, you know, spooks at the Stanford Internet Observatory would call, you know, the Internet radicalization pipeline. Um, But uh, it always was juxtaposed with a a deep conviction that I had that it wasn't enough to just be a passive consumer of this content. I actually had, had to go out and do something. And so sophomore year uh first semester rolls around and i go looking for an organization that i can hang my hat on and actually do stuff during uh that organization ended up being the young conservatives of texas which was a 40 year old um youth conservative organization that had seceded from a lot of the national organizations a couple of decades ago uh and it was really focused on state and local level politics. It certainly cared about campus activism, certainly cared about some national stuff, but really its focus was state level, uh, doing a legislative rating system every single year, uh, or rather biennium when the Texas legislature would meet, uh, block walking, primarying rhinos, et cetera. Um, it was great. It got me the bug for actually doing stuff that you can touch and see. Um, I've started using this analogy that's a bit evocative. Um, I'm not really a fan of the kind of, uh, uh, efforts that feel like trying to heat up the ocean by pissing in it. Um, and so <laughs> I, 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 I like being involved in a way where I can like touch and see the reality of the work I've done. And uh, that's what we did at YCT. I ended up taking off the second semester of my sophomore year and working full time in the Texas legislature, um, ended up uh, rising up through Young Conservatives of Texas, still a biochemistry major all the way, just because I really didn't want to do the foreign language requirement to switch over to a government major. Um, Wait, your last name is Sharma and you don't speak a foreign language? I mean, I speak some Hindi, but I didn't want to take Hindi classes. Um, They would have been filled with really annoying people. And so I just decided (laughs) against it. Um, And so I uh, rose up through YCT, became their their youngest state chairman they'd ever had. And uh, we did a lot. We doubled the size of that organization, really grew its fundraising, hosted a fantastic uh, convention for their 39th anniversary. Uh, And I was ready to sort of hang up my hat and uh, retire from the game, so to speak, Uh, go to law school. I'd taken the LSA in the meantime, gotten a good score, was ready to go. Um, And I was scheduled to resign from YCT on a Friday in April of 2020. Um, It had been decided for weeks. That's the day my resignation would go out, gotten the affairs in order. And then the Wednesday before that Friday, I read an article from J.D. Vance called End the Globalization Gravy Train, an article that talked about a lot of things. And 
honestly, I have like false memories of stuff that's in that article because of what it made me think about. Um, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about that article, which talked about the infrastructure we will need if any of this realignment and change happening on the right is likely to succeed. Um, it's not enough to elect candidates. It's not enough to have the right ideas. There needs to be an entire array of policy um, and personnel infrastructure in DC in order to implement that agenda. Um, at 3.30 in the morning, uh, after not being able to sleep for hours as I was thinking about this, I texted you and Jake. Um, and by Thursday evening, before I'd even fully wrapped up my time with YCT, we had decided we would create American Moment. Uh, and it's been a, a wild ride since then. We built it privately behind the scenes from April of 2020 through February of 2021. Um, I basically quit all my jobs and was doing it full time. I had spent every dime of the savings I had so, uh, you know, judiciously saved up during college um, and uh, gave up my law school deposits. <laughs> um, but and who was it that convinced you to not go to law school? Uh, Destiny. Uh, God, um, to a certain degree, Nicholas uh, Sawyer Solheim. Uh, we were uh, on one of our trips to D.C., um, before I could move here because I just it wasn't financially feasible for me to move here yet um, and we had gotten done with a bunch of meetings that day some pretty cool stuff and I we were back in your apartment back when you lived up in Northwest and I was just like pacing and pacing and pacing and pacing and pacing and at some point I called the admissions officer at the school I was deposited at and I said hey <laughs> uh, not really going peace out um, and uh, it was great it's a it's a crazy time to to think about. We were all like pretty poor and yeah. you and and you and Jake would come up here. I mean, we worked on this thing without without pay that that whole time mm -hmm. of, of 2020. Yeah, we 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 didn't run payroll for the first time until December of 2021. Even then like very very little. <laughs> yeah. You and and you and Jake would come. I had like an air mattress and one of you would sleep on the on that like yeah. IKEA couch that I had. Yeah. Yeah. Back back when you were um still a, an unmarried man and you thought that uh being hospitable included uh putting the AC at like 58 degrees it's and shy, I would like sleep on the air mattress next to the AC and nearly froze to death multiple times. It was not fun. But see, here's the thing is now that I now that I have a house and I have to pay my uh, heating and cooling bill for an entire house. I keep it at a nice 68 degrees when I sleep. So yeah. if you ever come stay at the house now, uh, it's a little... And I have a real guest bed now. But oh, very exciting. Anyway, <laughs> very exciting times in our household. Um, um, one of the frequent uh, critiques I think that you get personally, um, and, I, and I mentioned this jokingly a minute ago, but I think it's something that you should seriously defend... Your last name is Sharma. Why you love America? Um, and this is a very everyone from you know the libertarians to the socialists. They're all uh, white nationalists. They, yeah, they all they all hate you because your last name is Sharma. Defend yourself. Yeah, um, I really love this country. We became naturalized citizens when I think I was around ten. Um, my whole family and I did together. My sister was actually born here, um, so she didn't. But. Um, you know, immigration is a is a fascinating thing. Um, it's an inherently disruptive, almost violent process. Um, you're taking people who exist in a community where they're surrounded by generations and generations of friends and family, and you're sending them somewhere else. And 
there is a way of doing immigration that a lot of people do in the United States that I just fundamentally disagree with. Constantly having one foot in two places, not really picking an identity. And having grown up in parts of the country that didn't have a lot of Indian immigrants and places that did, I saw two things. One, I saw that living in a place that doesn't have a lot of people that are from the same foreign country as you is a great way to make sure that you assimilate. Um, I'm very glad the first few places we lived in were places like Lexington and Albuquerque, not places like Edison, New Jersey or Cupertino or even, um, you know, Plano, Texas, because um, my parents wouldn't have really had to change much about themselves, what they believed. And um, I would have grown up to be a very different person. You would probably have an Indian accent now. Oh, I have one. I just use it to talk to my parents. Um, <laughs> the second layer of it that that's that's, that's important is that um, I spent a lot of time thinking about like Indian diaspora culture, what second generation immigrants are like. And I'm more and more convinced that there's a lot of people for whom it is just, oh, gosh, golly gee, didn't uh, I eat some funny food and have to study a lot growing up? And yeah, maybe two people like that will like get married, have kids. But the, the question that always haunted me is, what do you raise those kids in? A deeply hollow identity that's defined by not being in a place that your family once was or actually being um, uh, a, a fulsome citizen of the country you live in. And, and that's the approach that I've chosen to take in my own personal life. And so every aspect of my uh, political agenda and what I believe is defined by what is best for America and Americans. And the latter is a more um, important thing to me than than even the former, because you know people have these abstract ideas of what the country is and you know, it's an American idea and all that. So I just don't care. I care about the like very kind, decent people that I have gotten to know over the years in places like Texas that um, are were were deeply welcoming, very kind, uh, and uh, deserve public policy that looks out for their interests. Um, because uh, we don't have a lot of that right now. And uh, I think that any other approach um, would be basically immoral. Like if I felt the need at a pre-political level to make my policy agenda what is good for Indian immigrants or what is good for India, then I would feel a moral responsibility to not be involved in politics because that's just not fair. It's not fair. Once you become a citizen, your primary allegiance should be to this country. You'd be like all these legal immigrants like hawking unlimited h1b visas correct and and, and, and it's funny because like my dad literally came into the united states on an h1b visa and even he's told me stories about how the program has become so corrupt over the years mm -hmm. um it's it's uh, usually the thing people are getting maddest about is my immigration politics um when 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 they start mentioning oh your name is sharma but you you know so and so again uh there's there's no reason why i should assess immigration any differently than someone who has eight generations of history in the United States. I really believe that. Um, so I'm an immigration restrictionist. I think maybe we 1.1 million legal immigrants a year plus a disastrously open uh, border for illegal immigration is a bit much. Um, open to very interesting arguments on how much the right amount should be. I think it's generally should be drastically less, but it's a public policy issue like any other. I don't treat it any differently than I treat the question of like what the tax rate should be or what um, our education system should be, except that 
I don't think it's enough to just focus on the economic consequences of immigration. There are deep cultural questions that have to be answered. Otherwise, we don't live in a country. We live in an open air bazaar. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about those views and, and policies that, that motivate you. Uh, there's, you know, much ado made about the the new right. Um, and we, I hate that term. Yeah. So I, I, let me actually explain that. Well, that's why I use if you're watching on YouTube, I use quotation marks. Yeah. So the reason I hate the term new right, um, and you'll notice we never use it in any yeah. of our materials, is because there is nothing new about the idea that we should be less than demented about our immigration policy, our trade policy, our foreign policy, and the culture. There are people, um, some who are fashionable and some who are very not fashionable for the last 60 years and really for the past 250 years that have advocated for every single one of those policies um, that I describe, including people inside what is known as the like institutional conservative movement. Everyone from Pat Buchanan to Jeff Sessions to Donald Trump um, and, and, and many people much older than that recognized that you need to make things in your own country. You need to look out for middle-class jobs. You need to, uh, avoid cultural revolution in every front. Uh, immigration is a, a choice and every nation has the right to choose whether or not they want to do it. And our foreign policy adventurism has gone insane. Um, there's nothing new about any of those ideas. Uh, I generally don't like the labels game in general, but if there's one I hate the most, it's new right. It's deeply hubristic to say that there's anything new about these ideas. And um, you know, a criticism that's often levied against us is, you know, oh, these, you know, these young guys who just want to, you know, overturn the system and whatever. It's like, we are very self-conscious whether or not people recognize it, that we exist in a long tradition of people who have fought for these ideas. Maybe we'll be slightly more effective because the moment is right and we've learned from past people's mistakes, but by no means are we hubristic or ungrateful enough to say that any of these ideas are new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I, you know, what I really want to get to here is, is what we kind of define as our vertical, mm -hmm. like what is, what is the American moment vertical? And, and we'll get to the practical stuff in, in a minute, you mm -hmm. know, how we're actually doing this. But, um, in terms of like the policies, the views, those areas, who's in the vertical, what's in the vertical and what's not, what kind of things are you looking for when you're meeting with new people? Yeah, I believe in a term that I've developed called tactical ecumenism. Um, and basically, it means two things. It means recognizing that you're not going to agree with everyone and finding common cause on the issues you agree on with people who may be non-traditional. And it also means an open-mindedness on tactics. And so I'll go through both of them. Uh, if there was a set of issues that American Moment really cares about, let's say it's foreign policy, trade, immigration, culture, on each of those issues, there is a different coalition of people who are aligned with us. If Let's just put arbitrary numbers on this. If you were to describe the percentage of people in DC in positions of influence that are completely with us on all four of those issues, let's say that coalition is only 10% of DC. But if you go down on each of those four issues on who's great on those and, and a nine out of 10 or above on those, that coalition might be 40% of DC or maybe 30. I'd much rather go to battle on 
or with with thirty percent of uh, the people around me on our team than with just ten percent. Uh, now that's sometimes easier said than done. What it requires is a certain level of of, of humility and a willingness to maybe under index isms, right? So. American moment does not say we believe in a certain ism. We're trying to convince everyone on that ism. And by consequence of that ism, they believe in these policies and therefore they should be aligned with us. We just care about the policies. We care about is someone good on X, Y, or Z issue, whatever they want to call themselves, nationalist, post-liberal, integralist, libertarian even. Like I, I just don't care. I care about having people come on board to fight for the things that need to happen. Otherwise, we won't live in a country in 10 mm. years. Um, and so... And we've worked with all of those groups you've yes. just mentioned, by the way. Yeah. Like every last one. Yeah. And that's essential because we don't have time to play intellectual parlor games. Uh, I This is one of my, my favorite riffs, but I, I truly believe in the conservative case against writing essays at each other until we all die. <laughs> like it's just not enough for us to engage in posturing games where what we're trying to do is, and, and let me just explain what exactly people do in this space. One of the problems we have is that academia is closed off to the right. And so you have a lot of people who in another lifetime would be academics, but instead are in politics or policy. And so academic temperaments find their way in places they have no business being. Ideological purity and you know deep systematic thinking about philosophy are great. Um, they don't belong in effective politics. I really believe that. And so uh, we just aren't interested, nor would we be particularly good at playing a game where a group of intellectuals try to say, you know, we are now fans of an ism. And because we have issue ownership over this ism, everyone must fall under our banner and do what we say. That's really what's going on. Um, I like to think that we don't have a lot of ego about this stuff. We don't really care who gets credit for getting certain things done. Our supporters and the people who have invested in us understand exactly the impact we're having. Um, and so we don't need, nor do I think anyone will ever have some sort of transcendent moment of ecstasy where all of our victories come all together and we feel like we've won. That, that's not how the world works. It's going to mm -hmm. be grinding out small victories every single day until we all die <laughs> what 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 is the the little saying again it's um you know uh reform what we what reform. oh yeah that this is this is another one of my my riffs on kind of what our theory of change is um build what you need reform what you can destroy what you must that's it in that order why there's a lot of people who love to talk about destroying institutions on the right, and I'm just as guilty of it. There's a lot of places in this town that I just despise. However, I find that the people who talk the most about destroying certain institutions are the ones with the least power to do so. And so in order to get to the point where we can actually destroy the deeply immoral institutions that have destroyed the right and destroy the country, we need to build new ones that are capable of adding to the arsenal find the institutions that can be reformed and do so recognizing that it's never going to look exactly the same as the perfectly pure things you can build a priori and then with that coalition you can stamp out the rats mm -hmm. that's the way i think about it so with that framework um i think a lot of people who listen to the show have probably not gotten to hear the long form 
why American moment, what is American moment, what are all the things we have are dirty paws in. You know? <laughs> uh, so give us the case for American moment and what it's doing. American moment exists at the nexus of a what and a why. That's what I always pitch it as. Our what is personnel and our why is this agenda we've just spent some time talking about. I think that we over-index on the right on the marketplace of ideas. It's fake. It doesn't exist. It was invented in the 1960s to sell magazines. <laughs> um, I'm mostly kidding. Oh, uh, which magazines? <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm mostly kidding about that. However, people think that when the president of the United States is sitting in the situation room with his advisors surrounded by them, that he's going to pull out a white paper from X think tank. It just doesn't work that mm. way. Ideas are embodied in people. And if you want ideas to succeed, you need to embody them in people. There is no perfect Socratic fora where all the best ideas are being debated and the best ones rise to the top. No, the ideas that rise to the top, rise to the top as a function of whether or not the people who believe them have power. That is how it works. Um, you can be correct all the live long day as you're being dragged into the gulag. <laughs> it's just not enough. And I have so, the right idea. <laughs> I have the right idea. Yeah. He screams as 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 you know Kamala Harris dragged him into you know the reeducation camp. Exactly. So, what American moment exists to do is to identify, educate, and credential the people who will be the embodiments of those ideas in important institutions. There's three that we're mostly focused on, maybe three and a half, depending on how you cut it. Presidential administrations, congressional offices, public policy organizations, and allied businesses. Those are the four presidential administrations. Uh, what happened in the Trump administration can never happen again. Um, you and I obviously spend every day working on this, but there are 4,000 people that need to fill every presidential administration on the day that they get elected. Um, and we simply have a supply problem on our faction of the right. We didn't have enough people when Trump got elected who believed like we do, who had the credentials, and who were capable of actually implementing change in government. Um, I don't think that's going to be a problem next time, partially through the work of people like ourselves, but also because there's a lot of other great people working on this, including the people in Trump's presidential personnel office, um, many of whom I, I consider dear friends in the last year uh, who actually started finding people and started vetting people. Um, their work is invaluable. I hope we're able to add something meaningful to it. Um, and many other organizations are working on it as well. And so, uh, we'll make sure that we're ready next time there's a presidential administration. Congressional offices. Why is it that every time a great member of Congress gets elected, they come to DC and they're just garbage? Part of a lot of the reason why is because they're surrounded by 23-year-old shitheads who don't know anything about the challenges facing the country. And even if they did have so little interest and so much apathy that they wouldn't do anything about it. You know, the the you know, 26-year-old guy who you know maybe his daddy was a donor to the congressman so he sent him to dc to keep him as far away from the family business as humanly possible who just sits around getting drunk at mission every night and look mission's a good time whatever but like those are people who don't have an actual vision and they ultimately end up being a very small c conservative force inside congress um in a bad way they 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 discourage reform because they discourage the members they work for from being reformers. And even if their members wanted to be reformers, their staff don't have the institutional knowledge 
or expertise on what reform would even look like. If a member wanted to be really awesome on trade, but they didn't have a single staffer that knew anything about trade policy, specifically in our direction, then that member isn't going to be able to do much on trade. And so we're also very attentive on the congressional offices, public policy organizations. Um, there's a lot of think tanks in this town. Uh, and one of the benefits that the left has that the right doesn't is that they have so many more places to keep their people. So if you're on the left and you want to cycle in and out of government, you can go to universities, you can go to the career bureaucracy, you can go to basically any Fortune 500 company in a rotating door, and uh, you can go to all of the quote-unquote nonpartisan civic institutions um, that are actually just left-wing activist organizations, adding on to that, obviously, all the lefty think tanks. We don't have any of that on the right, but we do have some of these think tanks. And so a lot of little grannies from across the country donate 10, 15, 20 bucks to these think tanks every day. Um, and the question remains is that if one of the reasons they exist is to house talent, what kind of talent are they housing? Are we spending the money for the few sinecures we have on the people who are really, you know, MVPs for the movement? And so we also pay attention to helping staff uh, public policy organizations. And then allied businesses, I think, is part of the life cycle. Um, after people leave presidential administrations, um, there should be rewards. And um, uh, building up a coterie of businesses that will hire people who have done good service and who really, it's not the best use of their time to go back to a think tank or to a congressional office, but um, you know, need something to do for four or eight years in between presidential administrations. We've been building relationships with allied businesses that that will be interested in hiring um, those people after because one of the most evil things that the left did and the establishment too after the Trump administration is that they made it very hard for anyone who served till that last day to find employment. Mm -hmm. um, it's immoral, but honestly, there's there's no solution to it other than the one we create. And so we 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 talk to allied businesses sometimes. But that's the macro idea, is that you find people who are deeply convicted on these values that we care about on the public policy make sure that they're competent and that they're high character, because I certainly don't want to spend 40 years around people who are intolerably annoying, um, and accelerate their career as rapidly as possible so that uh, we can rebuild this personnel pipeline from scratch. So I know that one of the biggest things that motivates us is uh, you know, the personnel disaster during the Trump administration. Um, there were a lot of a lot of bad people. And so we've we've been kind of working on building that pipeline like you're talking about. Um, and we have recently started to receive some attention along with other allied organizations um, for this effort to build the personnel pipeline. Most notably um, in Axios, where we're covered by uh, Jonathan Swan, um, whom I'm going to request you 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 do the accent because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> it's really funny. Just work this into your answer somehow. Um, but talk a little bit about, um, if you could, about you know those those efforts. What twenty twenty four is looking like and how we're measuring success between now and then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is it? What is it like when he calls you? Hi, man. <laughs> um, so Jonathan Swan. Uh, Pretty great journalist at the at Axios. He was one of the kind of rising stars during the Trump administration. Did a lot of the, I think, fairly fair coverage of the Trump administration over there. Um, wrote the longest article in Axios history. I think. I think it's like a twenty eight minute read. Um, 
and it was about it's not very smart brevity of him or mm-hmm. whatever their tagline yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and uh and we talked to him for that piece um as did many others uh it's a piece about what the next presidential administration is going to be like in 2025 a lot of it's centered around what might happen if president donald trump is reelected, and we'll certainly uh, uh love to help him out if that's the case but i think it could apply to any president conservative um and uh it was pretty interesting i mean uh you know in a list of probably five or six major organizations that he cited i think there were like seven to eight paragraphs uh dedicated to us and what we're doing um and it was cool to get that level of attention um we we certainly at this point are recognized as power players in this space um that's important for us because um when a presidential transition begins it's an immediate show um and so uh having a seat at the table is important because we deeply care about the success and advancement of this cadre of people that we've built up um that that is really the the orienting perspective that i think we come to a lot of the personnel stuff is that whereas maybe other organizations have a destination focused view um of personnel that they're they're allies with a destination and therefore they want to help them get staffed i'd say we put a bigger premium on we have these really talented, capable, aligned people, and we just want to see them succeed as dramatically as possible. Um, and so we we ultimately just, we, we value people at the end of the day. Um, and so the Axios piece talked about a little bit about kind of what kind of criteria we're looking for, perspectives on immigration, trade, foreign policy, culture, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and our strategy, I think, in it, it said we uh, have about 700 people uh, vetted and ready to go. Um, I think we'll have 1,000 by the end of this year. Um, those numbers are accurate. Um, and really, you know, we, we, are, we are capable at this point of generally being able to fill any personal request that comes our way. Um, and that's taken a lot of work. Um, sometimes it takes a week or two, but most of the time it's pretty fast. And uh, literally, I, I did one yesterday um, over the phone. Someone called me um, and they were like, hey, we have this opening for this thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll get back to you. And then like I got a text message. and I was like, oh, wait, I have someone for you right now. <laughs> that kind of thing happens all the yeah, time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And, and you know, there's there's an element of this, which is the way that we've built out the personnel network is really we've just tried to be a clearing out crown for information and resources and knowledge. Um, people come to us when they need something. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's not personnel, sometimes other things. And because of this robust personnel network we've built up and because of the support of our generous donors, we're often able to do interesting narrative moving things. I mean, when we did Up From Chaos, uh, that wasn't strictly within the four corners of our personnel stuff. However, we thought that there was a specific opportunity to create a show of force for the foreign policy perspective that we believe in. And it worked. It was probably the biggest right-wing realist foreign policy conference in 40 years. And you saw in the weeks after a narrative change on the right. And I think it culminated in that $40 billion for Ukraine vote where you had the dam break and 11 senators and 57 um, House members voted no. In other times, that would have been one, one and a half members in the Senate and maybe four in the House. Um, and a couple of those, like the leaders in, in that vote spoke at our at our conference. Right. Yeah, right. And, you know, the the, the old cadre would have been people like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, who are patriots, who have fought on these issues for a long time. But there's rising stars like Dan Bishop, Matt Rosendale, mm-hmm. um, and others, you know, hopefully, you know, um, some of the people who spoke there are, are only going to get more prominent on this issue. Um, that's how we think about it, is that we are, yes, we are a personnel sh- shop, but we're also kind of a special purpose vehicle to 
get things done that use heterodox theories of change. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't think we wrote a single op-ed on Ukraine <laughs> at any point no. in any of this. But uh, we had a lot of people ask us to sign on to one. Yeah, but, but like I, I, I just I don't think that that helps. I think doing stuff like what we've been doing is is mm -hmm. much more impactful and i'm very blessed to have a ton of success and um i constantly say to people and to myself uh that we have no business doing any of what we're doing right now <laughs> we always we always joke in the office about how uh god shines on the man yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> or no what, what, what is it um you know uh, uh, yeah exactly i just We've been extraordinarily blessed. Um, God smiles upon God America. smiles That's upon America. That's what it was. Moment. Yeah. I mean, right. We're both just like sitting here trying to figure yeah. it out. I mean, and, and there's been moments like really dark, terrifying moments where like literally something just falls in our lap that was completely unexpected. And it's like there is no uh, argument for why any of this has happened other than God's providence and yeah. uh, a set of supporters who've really believed in us, both financial and otherwise. Um uh, again, people think that we're, we're cocky hotshots, and that's fine. I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. But um, I, I really am humbled every single day that I get to do this. I say, even though I, I, I work what feels like three jobs sometimes, um, I have the best job in D.C. It's not close. Um, do what and, you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. Correct. Um, I simply vibe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think one of the, the things that we really struggled with right off the bat when first pitching this to people was that it's very... It's very easy, I think, to work toward a future goal that's very far away, you know? So when we were first talking to people in 2020, right, 2025 was like half a decade away, you know, it was very, very far in the horizon. I think one of the most compelling things that I've heard you talk to, um, you know, people about here in D.C. is what our kind of measurement for success is this year and next year. Um, what does, you know the next like nine months like how do you define success in the next nine months as we as we get to the beginning of next year sure um i think there's going to be a, a red wave of some variety i keep hearing it on the news um it's not really our thing as an educational nonprofit, but there will be a bunch of members of congress elected who think like us um there'll be a change of leadership on the committees in a direction that makes it more consonant with our values 60 freshman Republicans come into Congress between the House and the Senate, you will see about a thousand open positions on Capitol Hill. That is the personal offices plus the committees changing hands. We would like as many of those thousand to be filled with people who are in our network. Um, in some cases, that'll be bringing new people to DC who have never been here before. In some, in a lot of cases, it's going to be taking the existing cadre that we've built up here and promoting the hell out of them. Um, making sure that they have better roles, um, more advanced roles, and are really making a concrete impact because I think the, the power of young, personable, and active staffers in, in new offices is immense. They can help set the culture in an activist and creative direction and avoid the temptation of apathy that a lot of members of Congress end up having um, in their first year because they're told to just put their head down and do uh, whatever it takes to to go along and get along. So we're really excited for that. Um, we want to be a, a hub for a lot of the creative new thinking that's going to come to DC in the next few months, and I think we will. Um, there's really no other organization that has as much street cred um, with this way of thinking on the right than we do. 
in DC with any institutional resource whatsoever. So um, I think that um, we're going to be able to do more cool stuff. The way I put it sometimes is that we have two inputs and two outputs and every day we come to work and we combine some combination of these four and do cool stuff. So the two inputs is uh, our monetary resources that we have and our credibility, which is a resource too. We And then our outputs are personnel and worldview. So every day we come to work and we recombine some combination of monetary resources, credibility, personnel, and worldview, and we do cool stuff at rocks. Um, and so, and so we'll, we'll do a lot of that, I think in the new year as, um, you know, some of these people start to settle in. So, um, one thing that was, uh, really unique about this Axios article, uh, is that it is one of the only pieces of positive media that we've received. Uh, you saw, you know, at our at our first launch, especially uh, a lot of negative press, um, you know, people who seemed to really not like our idea very much. Um, so as we as we close, um, you know, with a final final question, um, if you populism, why cocktail? <laughs> um, so. This and is, you should explain the yeah. context, but so this is an argument that's been made by not very intelligent people for the past two years. Um, that because we believe in maybe a more working class conservatism, maybe one that's more attentive to the needs of the middle of the country, um, because we believe those things, we are hypocrites because we are in D.C. and occasionally have parties and events with other staffers. It's one of the most exceptionally stupid things I've ever seen. It's concern trolling and it's bad faith. And let me explain why. Any agenda of political reform requires people who are in D.C. and living very different lives than the people who their policies will affect by definition. I mean, if the Republican Party is a mostly rural party and the conservative movement and its attenuating priorities come out of that, then by definition, just by being in a city in the first place, we will have a different lifestyle than the voters. So on that face alone, what this approach to politics is, is basically the implication that if you actually believe in a vision of conservatism that benefits the middle of the country, then you can't be involved in politics. I reject that. And I think that a lot of what motivates it uh, is a desire to see us get out of town. And we're not going to. We're going to stay. And so I make no apology for the idea that occasionally when um, our cadres put in, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of hard work, or arriving early, leaving late, has taken slings and arrows for what they believe and have done the hard work of moving our perspective on these issues forwards, I have no problem with occasionally throwing a party for them where there is an occasional cocktail or some hors d'oeuvres. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it's probably vastly preferable to the various honeypot operations that most of DC runs around um, at certain restaurants that are owned by foreign governments. Um, and uh, and it's certainly better than uh, living a degenerate lifestyle where you get trashed six nights a week, burnt, get burnt out, and then leave DC. 
part of the reason that the right loses so often is because there's no institutional memory. And part of the reason we do that is because most of the staffers in D.C. are only here for three to five years on their way to law school. And so if we are going to attract a certain set of people who are interested in doing this work for the long haul, and if we are going to be ruthlessly selective on worldview and character, then by God, we're going to try to build a culture around that worldview and the perspective of how to live well that we believe in that involves a social scene. And there's nothing wrong with that. I make no apology to it whatsoever. I also personally like cocktails. I always have. I was never a beer guy or a wine guy. I just, I, I, I like doing things with my hands. I like cooking. I like making cocktails. Um, and frankly, every single person who makes this criticism, it doesn't really bother me at this point. It, the version of an article about this comes out once every two to three months, and it's always hilarious. Uh, but I, I just want to make it clear that they go themselves. <laughs> and that probably has to get bleeped. Um, I don't want to mark it explicit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is a family friendly show. Um, that's, that's basically it. Um, cities always have a culture endemic to themselves and a city like DC that has such a weird bifurcated scene along right and left is going to have even weirder scenes still. It doesn't mean that we encourage pretension. Um, uh, if people show up wearing like, you know, three-piece tweed and pocket watches and uh you know looking like they're a train conductor from the 1730s to our events we tell them to go away like we really we do make fun of them. yeah we, we, we make fun of them we tell them to get lost because i also make just, fun of you when you dress correct up, so. um it's 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 ridiculous um we, we 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 aren't supportive of creating you know a scene of like you know cigar tooting fedora wearing nerds dorks um this is part of the reason why i jokingly say that i'm functionally illiterate i don't read i don't know how is <laughs> because at the end of the day i don't think that scholastic um a scholastic approach to these issues is necessarily going to advance the ball forward at this point in time what it requires is deeply convicted people who find their energy to go to work the next day and fight somewhere and if that energy comes from a social scene that is rewarding because their friends who believe like them that they can actually unwind with are present in then i am more than happy and our donors are more than happy to help facilitate that through buying some catered lunches and dinners and occasionally buying some beer wine and cocktails so you haven't answered a very important question you own suit jackets and participate in society. Why do you hate the working class? So true. <laughs> so true. Sarab, okay. uh, where can people find you? Where can they <laughs> keep up with what you're doing, what we're doing? You, you, you can follow uh, my often uh, deranged Twitter at uh, SSharmaUS um, and uh, follow everything that we're doing at AmericanMoment.org. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for tuning in uh, to this episode of Moment of Truth. Um, if you like that episode, there's a lot more where that came from. Um, we got a lot of exciting episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so if you haven't already, please make sure to uh, like the video or the podcast, uh, rate, review the show. Um, if you write a really interesting review, um, you know, Sarab has a narcissistic personality disorder, so he looks at them every day. Uh, so if you write something really funny, we might read it on the show. Who knows? Um, thanks for tuning in to Moment of Truth, and we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. 
Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. 